Hello strangers and welcome to episode 40. That's right strangers, there is now, well after this episode, there will be 40 episodes in existence of your weekly dose of unfiltered film chat, which I think Pete, you've said to me that you're not too keen on that, I think. I, I um, think it sounds like we're trying to sound sort of edgy when people can probably just make up their own minds. And sometimes, you know, where we'll get into a particular type of conversation and then we sound as if we are slightly filtering what we say. I think if we go totally unfiltered, there's going to be a lot more swearing on this show. That's what I'm saying. Um, that's true. Well, it's not the easiest thing to say, so maybe maybe I'll come up with something it, else. But, it, like yeah. everything, it can be perfected over time. Um this week's episode, episode 40, will follow the format that you're now probably fairly familiar with, where we go through sections starting at the beginning of a journey through the cinema and resulting in sort of leaving that cinema experience. Uh, that's what you get from Strangers in a Cinema, but we've added recently the section at the beginning, which is called the inbox or on the radar section. Pick the one that you prefer. Or maybe prefer. the journey to the cinema or something. Yeah, We're working on the way on there. It. We're working on it. it something. probably won't stay as inbox forever, but... Uh, idle chat in the street or something <laughs> like that yeah uh, we'll get through that section then we'll get into popcorn movies which is a feature we've had for a while now where Paul and I share the films that we've seen recently this will be over the last seven days because we record every every seven days then we'll get into coming attractions this is where you sit down in the cinema you watch the trailers and you get amped about the things that are coming up uh, or if you're me you don't see any of those trailers and you show up like a minute into the film um, <laughs> oh you've beaten me to that <laughs> we're, we're then going to get into our features section. This week, we're changing it up from the last, I don't know, half dozen episodes. We've got one feature this time. It was a bit of a slower week at the cinema for new releases that we wanted to give attention to. And I haven't to. been in Venice, so I haven't been as much as I should have done. So Right, so this week we're fo focusing on The Belco Experiment, which is the Greg McLean-directed um, sort of social horror thing thriller experiment film set in a corporate environment i'm sure you've seen the uh, fairly chilling trailer for that one and finally we're going to have our homework section where we set each other homework for the week and we also review the films that we were set by each other the previous week paul that was a lot of stuff to get out of my system <laughs> let's get over to your side of this table and kick us off with on the radar idle chat outside the cinema uh, inbox, whatever you might call it. Yes, so this is the news uh, that I believe came out this week. Uh, well, everyone knew there was going to be Avatar sequels. Um, this is news that James Cameron has now pushed back, I think, Avatar 2 and confirmed release date for Avatar, wait for it, 3, 4 and 5. Yeah, um, this has been sort of in the pipeline for a bit, right? You've heard murmurings of these yeah. these sequels when they eventually roll out. When are the dates? So we've got Avatar 2, which is now coming in 2020, followed by Avatar 3, I think, in 2021. And then I'm assuming the others, assuming 4 and 5, I think are 2024 and 2025, respectively. Okay. Now, the the reason I bring this up is, is obviously Avatar was massive at the time. I'm not really sure I agree that it shouldn't have been as big as it was, but certainly it was it was a good effects movie. Do you think anyone still cares, Pete? I, I've got a sort of counter-question instead of an answer. It's going to be over 10 years since the first film by the time the, the second one comes out. A thought experiment for you, Paul Anderson. If Avatar 2 was coming out this summer, how excited would you be? Yeah. Because, yeah, it, it, <laughs> my, my feeling is if the announcement was, yeah, oh, surprise, we're releasing in August... I, it would be passingly interesting to me. I mean, I'm sure I'd, I'd go. It would be some sort of visual treat, but... To say that the next film in this series comes out in three years' time is to say to me, don't bother paying attention to this for a little bit, mm. for quite a like a big bit, really. Um, yeah, it's hard to be excited about something that's so far off, and also something that it doesn't have the stock of something like Star Wars, right? When you say the new Star Wars film might be coming out in two years or three years, well, I don't know whether it does. Well, I don't know whether it does or it doesn't, because I think maybe, maybe not so much in in um, sort of film geek circles who I think right, have kind of rightly rounded on it to an extent I don't think it, the first film is a terrible film by any stretch I also don't think it's amazing I just think it's a workable sci-fi action film but I, I, I still think maybe it is really highly regarded outside of the sort of more hardcore film fan circles and maybe these will do well but I just I'm not convinced I just think they've left it too long well, I think it'd be nice to see Cameron do something else to be honest yeah but. and I mean we're on a, a cycle with the show where we're doing a feature review or two feature reviews every week and there's big things coming out month on month on year on year it's very difficult to to prioritise talking about, thinking about, discussing, yeah, something just so far off. I, I don't know. For me, I, it's very lukewarm to 
receive that news. My my reception of it is very lukewarm anyway. I yeah, don't... no, mine is as well. But I'd be intrigued to see. It's intriguing to see whether they make anywhere near as much money as the original. Because what are we doing? Money. Like we're bringing Zoe Saldana back when she's like forty five years old to do Avatar five or whatever. I don't, I don't really understand how that lineage is going to work. Are we going to bring actors back? I, I imagine not. We've got a whole new cast then, maybe. I mean, well, I think Scorny Weaver's coming back. I assume Sam Worthington's coming back. I think the original cast are coming back, but I just I don't know whether it's been too long whether Avatar was a bit of a success was maybe a bit of a fluke although Cameron has always been a successful director so I'm I'm intrigued but I'm not overly excited yeah yeah and I mean isn't it also an opportunity for James Cameron to just get his hands on the latest camera tech and play around with Mm. it for the next few years you know regardless of the film and the film's going to be so heavily promoted that it's almost a built-in success anyway so Mm. let that get on with itself and I'll sort of pay attention to other things I think for the next three years um from my side of the table, Paul, I've got the news this week that can have um, announced the in-competition list and the full lineup actually, for this year's Cannes Film Festival. And I just wanted to point out sort of a few of the filmmakers on the in-competition section of the Cannes uh, bill who I think are most in- exciting or interesting, at least from where I stand and, and see what you think. Um, we've got Korean director Hong sang Soo's film The Day After, which is at the top of that list. But in addition, we were talking about earlier, uh, Michael Haneke, his new film. Is is, it, he could be in line to win his third Palm d'Or? I that believe correct, that's I the think? case. Yeah, this one's called A Happy End. Um, we've also got yeah a couple of others that I um, noted. Oh, Bong Joon-ho's film Okja with Jake Gyllenhaal, awesome. which yeah. Yeah, we talked about on a previous show. Uh, should be pretty good and there was one more that I wanted to fit in here um, oh Yorgos Lanthimos um, the director of course of The, the Lobster and, and Dogtooth yeah. um, his new film called The Killing of a Sacred Deer oh and finally a personal favourite of mine Francois or Francoise no that would be a female I think Francois Rozon his film uh, L'Amant Double or Lamont Double, if you pronounce everything French <laughs> with an English accent. But yeah, a lot to get excited about, I think. Um, obviously, we're not going to be at Cannes unless a sort of wealthy benefactor wants us to throw some money in our direction. <laughs> but be excited to see those things eventually find themselves onto a screen that we have access to, you know? And um, yeah. I think for my pick of that list, probably just would be the new Michael Haneke film. Uh, this one's supposed to be set around something to do with the, the European refugee crisis, I think. So uh, if it's the impact of a mall is anything to go by, I think it will be one that certainly makes you sit up and think. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, excited about all those films in, in fairness. So so uh, let's get out of the fancy world of can and into the real world of <laughs> gritty realism of our popcorn movie section that... Um, both features popcorn that we rarely buy at the cinema and movies that we usually it's usually a piece of vocabulary that we don't use to describe films <laughs> so perfectly titled um paul kick us off what was a film that you saw in the last week that you've decided to bring to our audience on this show um i'm gonna open uh with basket case right this is an album by the uh, pop punk band green day uh, it is that is correct is it a song or an album maybe it's not an um, album maybe it's a song I don't know Dookie is the record I think I think yeah, I think that would be a song on that album then. Yeah. yeah but no this is um, this is an 80s um, horror film much in the vein of the kind of exploitation stuff I've been watching recently um, and I think much like I've done with the other films I'm going to afford it the same uh the same privilege of me reading the back of the, the box. Same, the same the professional scene. shine of yes. reading a, a yes. Blu-ray box. So, what's in the basket? A question Dwayne Badley has asked a lot when he arrives in New York and treks into the sleazy Hotel Broslin. Who would guess it contains his grotesquely deformed brother, Belial? Separate at birth, the Siamese twins have come looking for revenge on the doctors that left Belial for dead. And now the basket dweller is ready to wreak blood-soaked carnage. Yeah, I, I hadn't guessed Belial his, his <laughs> set. What was the, the condition of his brother at that time? Dead or alive? Uh, deformed. So deformed. Uh, so basically, yes, this is, this is as you might expect, a, a kind of an exploitation slasher. Um, and unlike a lot of the exploitation slashers I've watched and reviewed recently, uh, this one is a lot of fun. Um, it technically has it's mired with some issues. Uh, there's one point where a couple, where a, like two characters walking up the stairs, they do an edit, and the characters are on different side of the staircase. So you, you there's a lot to, you're going to have to overlook. But it's so silly and so over the top, and you know the deformed, the deformed Siamese twin of a brother that he carries around in the basket is just this this weird bad, like physical uh, special effect thing that's that is inexplicably powerful and scares everyone. Um, it's a lot of fun actually I, there's a lot here that I, that I would would say I'd say there's certain bits of this film that possibly influenced 
things like the Greasy Strangler, certainly Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, I would say. The the skipper, the I Child episode of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, I think owes a lot to Basket Case. And actually, yeah, technically not great. It's very cheaply shot, as you can imagine. But for me, it's it's above the usual level of stuff that I've been watching, actually. Um, very funny, in fact. So actually, not the bottom of the barrel, some way up the barrel. Not the bottom one. of the barrel, no. or not the bottom of the basket in this case. Right, so, and de- yeah. deformed some way yeah. up the basket. Nice. Um, from that one, I've got for my first. Uh, we we're going to do this as a feature, and to be honest, I don't think it was worth the time that we would have given it. This is uh, the film Unforgettable from director Denise Denovi. It's been on the shelf, I think, for about three years since it was completed. Was a good sign that in twenty fourteen. Unforgettable, first of all, lays itself open to the um, one line sort of Twitter review, forgettable, or, <laughs> you know, unforgettably bad, and things like that I've seen recently. Well, but, I found it funny at least, so. But. Yeah, I, I've seen, um, or I've been somewhat interested in seeing this film purely because it stars one Rosario Dawson, who is like the lioness high priestess who should probably rule over us all. But instead. <laughs> She's consigned to appearing in sort of B-movie um, psychological thrillers like this one. Uh, she stars alongside Catherine Heigl, um, who I'd essentially written off as a quite sort of irritating star of Well, films. if this has been on the shelf for three years, it makes sense why Catherine Heigl's in it. Yes, it does, because it was in sort of more peak Heigl period mm. where Heigl was doing it, or the like sort of tail end of peak Heigl, I suppose. Um, because it's easy to forget that she was in Knocked Up all those yeah. years ago because you sort of think that that might have been a better actress now this is all to say <laughs> that actually she's not that bad in this and this kind of role is much more suited I think to the actress that she is than the roles she'd be okay. previously occupying with the likes of Gerard Butler and stuff um, the idea is that um, Catherine Heigl was previously mar- uh, married to a sort of strapping late 30 something guy um, they've previously split up he is now with Rosario Dawson's character the couple uh, Heigl and her ex-husband had a child together who is now maybe eight or nine years old very sweet little girl and it turns out that Catherine Heigl is a sort of very controlling woman who can't bear to see her ex-husband with a new woman and can't bear to see the new woman have any influence on her young daughter's life and upbringing so she sort of inserts herself into the domestic life of this new couple and tries to make it as difficult as possible for Rosario Dawson's character to deal with her newfound sort of adoptive motherhood, surrogate motherhood, I, I suppose. Um, there, there are positives here. There is some tension created with the plotting of these two people head to head it reminded me a little bit of what happened in the uh, HBO series I've been watching recently Big Little Lies between um, Reese Witherspoon's character and um, Zoe Kravitz so Zoe Kravitz here is the sort of uh, Rosario Dawson figure right and it's all about that tension where a parent is trying to take on a previous parent's role Um, the problems arise as the plot uh, develops because I think there's sort of an unbalanced um, level of tension unbalanced tone in this film by the time we get to the last third the final act it all gets very sort of hysterical and stabby and violent but it builds to that so slowly that it's less like a pot boiler mm. and more like a pot simmerer for sort of two thirds of the it's film almost as good as forgettable that Right. So, yeah, I can't can't say that I think Rosario Dawson's the world's best actress, but I think she has got a magnetism on screen, and I think she's by far the best thing about this film in terms of the performances. Catherine Heigl, though, better than you might expect as a sort of frost... Like a a sort of third-rate Nicole Kidman, I would say, in the frosty of her roles. And that's damning with faint praise, maybe, but from the position I, I, you know, in in which I sort of viewed Catherine Heigl before, I think she's come up a little bit in in my uh, reckoning. But yeah, uh, you're not going to rush out to see it. Uh, it, And it is pretty forgettable, and it will show up on a streaming service near you in very short order, I would imagine. And, you know, there are worse ways to spend your time, but but there are certainly much better ways to spend your time as well. That was unforgettable. Uh, one of those better ways to spend your time is to find and watch uh, Alice Lowe. I think that's a segue from uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place there from my previous review. Is to find Alice Lowe's directorial debut, Prevenge. Uh, basically about a pregnant woman who goes on a killing spree 
uh, at the behest of her unborn child who can talk to her via uh, psychic communication. Um, it's as silly as it sounds. Um, Alice Lowe, and it's quite interesting to watch Alice Lowe direct. Alice Lowe is someone I've got great amounts of admiration for. I think she's fantastic in pretty much everything she turns her hand to. She's great in Dark Place, great in Sightseers, mm. and great again here. I think she's got, there's, there's something about her performances that's, that's very funny. Um, and it's, it's nice to see, it's nice to see a solid directorial debut from her. Um, so that's, I've gone over the premise a bit already, I think. But so basically, there's a there's a climbing accident. She loses her husband, and then the unborn child decides she's going to go and get revenge for on the team that he went that went climbing with the husband. Um, so is it like commanding her from within her own body? It's talking to her. So you can hear you can hear the baby talking to her in her head, and she and it sounds of, like a baby. It's so, so it's a very weird, like squeaky voice. Just, okay. just telling just telling her what to do. Um, and saying that these guys are bastards and that kind of thing, and you're a bitch and this kind of thing, and, and just essentially like making her kill people. Right, and plays into that idea that, that I hear from you know expectant mother mothers where you have baby brain, right? Yeah. That like when you drop something or forget something or make a mistake, it's baby brain because of the effect that having a, a yeah. baby on board yeah. has it would, on it, you. It, yeah, it totally plays into that. And I, you know, I haven't spoken to any women with kids that have watched this yet, but I'd be certainly intrigued to talk to them. Um, it's not the most technically of accomplished films but not in the same way that Basket Case is technically unaccomplished I think it it struggles in places with a lack of budget I don't think some of the gore and some of the kills are quite up to the scratch of where I would like to have seen them um, that's not necessarily anyone's fault because I can imagine the budget wasn't massive on this um, and it's certainly not it's not a genre classic I think I hoped for a little bit more from it but it's still very funny and still shows a lot of promise from Alice Lowe I think so and it's certainly not going to be the last bit of, of directorial work that she does I would so. say it's it's very unlikely it's the last bit of directorial work that we see and you know on this basis it's a very good starting point and uh, yeah a lot of potential there not a starting point but certainly very good uh, my next popcorn movie for this week is the latest from Olivia Assayas, uh, a filmmaker that I sort of raved about particularly in light of Clouds of Sils Maria um, like a year or, or so ago, Juliette Binoche opposite uh, Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart returns here, and this one is called Personal Shopper. I think we even did a, a sort of coming attraction, or a bit of coming attraction. On I this think we did do a coming attraction. Some point. This, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the basic setup is that Kristen Stewart, as you may expect, uh, works as a personal shopper. She's based in Paris. She's uh, again, you may expect expect this, fairly uh, sort of disillusioned and. Um, and detached from her work. She doesn't really enjoy it. She doesn't really like any of the people that she has to interact with. She works for a sort of fashionista who sends her off on errands to go and pick up expensive gowns and jewellery from not only France or Paris, but all over Europe, including uh, at one point London. And um, at the same time, Kristen Stewart's character is a medium. And we learn early on that her brother, who has passed away, was also a medium. So her... Um, side objective or maybe in her mind main objective in her time in Paris is to stay there until she hears or feels or senses some kind of sign from the afterlife from her brother okay she doesn't know what form that will take she doesn't know if even the afterlife is a real thing but she's pretty convinced there will be some kind of sign now when I saw that setup and Olivia Sayas attached to it I thought that there was a bit of a disconnect there that that sounded kind of a bit goofy for yeah. a filmmaker like him and not as subtle as something like um, Clouds of Sils Maria I think my criticism still stands a little bit I'm not sure that the sections in this film where a ghostly presence um, is even visible at times work 100%. When you think about um, filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro with Devil's Backbone dealing with a similar idea yeah. of sort of haunting as a, as a metaphor, I think maybe handle it a little better mm. or it like fits and, and jives a bit more with the, the feel of that filmmaker's work. However, I can't underscore enough my previous comments regarding Casasol's Maria, which are Kristen Stewart is absolutely on fire. She's on just top form in this film, as she was in that film as well. She's in almost every scene. The camera is often very close to her face, picking up tiny, tiny details and expressions. Um, she lives this role and commits herself wholeheartedly. I think when they were filming, she had said that she didn't know exactly or she didn't want to know background about the character because she wanted to sort of respond to the material mm. more organically and in the moment and i think that comes across um really the film 
deals with loss because of this situation with her brother. It deals with how we process loss and it deals with the way in which after somebody's passed away, you can begin to feel as if you see them in every tiny detail of your life, whether you literally see them or whether you figuratively see them or sense them in small, the smallest of gestures or actions or, or items in the world. Final point on this one, I won't say anything about what's happening on screen here, but the closing sequence of the film, even if not everything before or preceding it entirely worked for me, the closing sequence of the film is an astonishing piece of work subtle but astonishing piece of work from both the main actress and the director Olivia Sayer. So uh, yeah if you like any of the things that I've just been talking about or you saw Clouds of Sils Maria definitely definitely check out Personal Shopper. Cool I will do I will do which brings me to my final uh, third and final because we said there's an extra popcorn movie this week uh, popcorn movie in fact which is and I did say last week that I'd received the uh, quite lavish um, Arrow release box set of the house films mm. and was looking forward to working my way through them rather enjoyed number one not convinced by number two um i did think they might get bad but not quite this quickly so this what, is what's the subtitle for this one Paul? this is house two and don't get me wrong i think the subtitle was amazing this is house two the second story okay and i'm not going to read the back of this blu-ray but there is something else on the blu-ray that I, I quite liked as well that on the top of the blu-ray it says frightening strikes twice <laughs> <laughs> So, House 2, the second story, Frightening Strikes Twice. Well, well so, done, sir. Whoever uh, yes, came up whoever with that. Whoever came up with that is, is good. Um, in this film, it's seemingly completely unrelated to the first film. It may be that they have made a film and then titled it House 2. Uh, I'm sure if I look into the history, and I'm sure there's people listening that will probably know whether this is the case or not. Um, in this film, um, a young person moves into an old family house, um, and realises that the... I think it's something like... I can't quite remember because it was so confusing. Um, they end up they end up encountering the mummified remains of like an old prospector, of an old prospector who I think is their great-great-grandfather. Is it deformed and in a basket? No, he comes back to life. They end up going to the Stone Age. There's some guff about a skull, an evil skull that needs to be kept out of evil hands. They end up going through a portal back to the Stone Age big guy rampages through a party and steals the skull back and then another undead cowboy comes back to life and they seem to have and has a confrontation with the undead grandfather cowboy. Do you think you watching these films is a cry for help? <laughs> I feel it might be. Um, now, I like weird films, don't get me wrong, as you can probably you can probably establish even from the, the last two that I've watched on the list. Um, but this is just one step too far. It's, I thought House was supposed to be a horror series. Um, perhaps I was wrong. This, this isn't scary in the slightest. It, it all, it's just bizarre. How many are in the series? Work. Four. Okay, so, so number got, three, maybe. Three's got Lance Henriksen in it, which I've, I'm, I've got to watch yet. And I, as far as I am three, uh, am aware, three is certainly a film that was retitled, that was made and then retitled as a house sequel. So, um, yeah, two. Not, it's. I mean, if you if you want to see if you've got a sort of if you've got a fascination with a really weird film, then certainly watch House Two. I think. There's, there's a certain amount of charm to be found in its weirdness and some of its creature design, but it's just mental and not always, mostly not in a good way. So listeners can look forward to House 3 and House 4 reviews coming up probably. House 3 and House 4 reviews are coming up. Um, I, I want to add in there as well that the, um, the uh, thanks to Arrow for slightly being late with delivering my Phantasm box set. So we'll have Phantasm 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5 reviews coming up as well. So you should be excited about that. Um, and I think that, that closes on... No, it doesn't. You've got well, I've got, I've got one more, man. Yeah, you're allowed three as well. Don't, that's, that's make, me, don't yeah. make me grab you by the hair and repeatedly punch <laughs> you in the face because I, I'm going to uh, squeeze in here the cat fight. This is uh, owner two. I was going to say because that seemed a bit aggressive, but that Moving, makes sense. Yeah, now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was <laughs> yeah, some context yeah. for what I've just said there. It's not the way I, I generally live my life. Uh, yeah, this one, I don't know, I think we brought this up on the show some weeks back. Um, Ona Tuchel, sorry, and his leads here, Sandra O oh and Anne Hesch in the film Catfight, made a fairly um, notorious now appearance on Doug Benson's podcast, Doug Loves Movies, uh, a, an episode that became, I think, the second in which a guest had been thrown off the show, the first time having been Ona Tuchel himself, before previously so he was set, he was thrown off 
his second appearance on the show, essentially. Uh, great hit rate as far as uh, his uh, upsetting everyone goes. Uh, along with him, Anne Hesch was thrown off the show because she went nuts and just started being horrible and sweary and obnoxious and disgusting. <laughs> now, definitely check out that episode because... Yeah, it you is, did play it to me. And it it's, is uh, it's kind mental. of car crash yeah. Uh, yeah. radio at its finest. But I was intrigued, and I suppose it worked from a promotional standpoint there, to find out what the film was that these people managed to make together particularly knowing that the central conceit here is that the actresses Anne Hesch and Sandra Oh were going to have full-blooded almost cartoonish fights during the film Catfight. I would say that both on the Doug Loves movie ep Movies episode and the film itself the one person who comes out with some dignity intact is Sandra Oh. I think Sandra Oh's performance is the best thing here um, and I think on the show as well she handled herself very well so I don't want to tar her with the, blush, uh, the brush of being sort of a crazy like Anne Hesch seems to absolutely be. Uh, the idea is that these two uh, women have uh, gone on very different paths in life. They went to school together and unbeknownst to one another, they're going to cross paths again at an art uh, event at which Anne Hesch is catering and Sandra Oh is, I think, um, along with her husband, who's some kind of art dealer or who has money. And they get into a conversation, catch up, as you do with people that you used to go to school with. Mm. Right? What have you been doing? How's it been going? But of course, the dynamic is not even because Anne Hesch is wearing the uniform of a person who's serving for a catering service and is immediately looked down upon by Sandra O's character, takes this very personally, very badly. The conversation becomes an argument. The argument is fueled by alcohol and it turns into a horrendous cat fight in a stairwell that leaves the um, Sandra O character uh, beaten to within an inch of her life and in a coma for I think two years. When she wakes up she's lost all her privilege, all her money, her husband's left her, her son died. Everything has gone completely completely wrong in her life. She had everything, she's lost yeah. everything. So we get from this the ability, um, as much as he, he, he is able to, for Ona Tuchel to present a sort of social satire about those who have and those who don't have, um, about the disparity between rich and poor, about um, jealousy and resentment. And I think it hits some pretty um, blackly comic, entertaining beats in that first half. But then almost inexplicably to me, he makes the narrative decision that the dynamic that we've seen in the first half of the film is essentially going to be entirely repeated in the second half of the film, but in the other direction, if you get my Yeah, drift. I see where you're coming from. Right. Which is just lazy. So one character Surely. who's on a high is then cut down to being at a yeah. low point. And again, I suppose my overarching feeling about this is I've heard people compare this work with Todd Salon's, and I think right. that is way off the mark. I think that Todd Salon's work, although dark, although at times very depressing, seemingly nihilistic, Todd Salon's has uh, wit about him. And, yeah, it's still funny and, though, isn't and it? And he has yeah. an insight, a sort of deep, incisive insight into the human condition that Ona Tuchel doesn't seem to have. What I felt from this filmmaker is that he's sort of sneering at everyone. He wants to sneer at the privileged, but he wants to sneer at people who don't have anything. He wants to sneer at people who confront others and, and enact their feelings with violence, but he also wants to sneer at people who don't have the audacity to do that kind of thing. So it comes over by the end, and its running time is far longer than it should be, as quite a sort of... It's like punching down, mm. and it's quite sneery, and it overstays its welcome. So I think... There was promise, and unfortunately that promise doesn't really turn into a, a cohesive whole that, no. that worked for me. And yeah, take Todd Salons or Rona Tuchel, it's Todd Salons for me every time. So which of the two films that have Grey's Anatomy cast members in them did you prefer this week, Pete? Who is the other Grey's Anatomy <laughs> cast member? Catherine Heigl. Oh, I, I'm gladly not familiar with Grey's Anatomy <laughs> at all, apart from occasionally when your uh, better half is watching. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, I've just yeah, I've been. I say I've been drawn into it because she doesn't watch it in any order at all. So there's no way, no possible way I can be drawn into it. Thankfully, but yes. Anyway, that brings us then to coming attractions. Now, my coming attraction this week is a director that I'm very excited about, who I think. I think, in fact, I'm pretty sure I know I rate more highly than you. Okay. Um, and that is director Edgar Wright um, and his latest film, uh, Baby Driver. Yeah, I mean, in my defence, I would say that I 
Yeah, you, you're probably right. I think that it was Scott Pilgrim versus the World that really just left me a bit cold. Okay. And felt like quite quite flashy, but a, a little irritating. Whereas his earlier stuff with with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, I mostly really like. Um, yeah, particularly Shaun of the Dead. Mm. But um, Baby Driver, what's the the setup here? So Baby Driver um, seems to be. Uh, it looks like possibly like a heist movie uh, with the um, the guy the titular uh, baby driver being played by Ansel Elgort who's a man whose face I could just punch all day sorry Ansel um, I don't particularly rate him as an actor right in um, the film that you're positing is a coming attraction yeah. that you're excited to see I'm right. still excited to see him right. I don't like I, I know the guy I've, you mean though yeah. I, I know the guy yeah. you mean I, I, for me perhaps untested I don't really like the, the material he's done the kind of young out stuff that he's done I don't particularly rate him as an actor but if anyone can get a good performance out of someone you don't like it's probably Edgar Wright um, the trailer doesn't really give a lot away um, and amongst other people in this, John Hamm, Jamie Fox. It looks like it looks like a traditional heist movie where he basically plays a, a strangely young getaway driver who's kind of the best in the business and looks like he might want to run away with his girlfriend to a better life. Now, I don't think it's a particularly well-made trailer, which is why it probably and the trailer's been out a while now, and I haven't thought to bring it up on the podcast because I didn't think the trailer was that great. Um, but it's Edgar Wright, and I personally think that Edgar Wright is by far by far the more talented one out of himself and Simon Pegg and it's, it's interesting and probably a whole nother discussion point as to why he's not working with Simon Pegg anymore in my opinion so I'm very excited about although Simon Pegg has gone on to do like Mission Impossible franchise films and stuff like that it's not as yeah, if which he's... is fine but he's not making great stuff sure but he's also making lots yes. of money and that's yes, got to yes. be a big yeah and I think that's a factor this... in possibly why they're not working together and was Nick anymore. Frost involved in at the moment I mean that's a broad question maybe for I think he's day, working but... on something with Simon Pegg as far as I'm aware okay um, but anyway yeah so new Edgar Wright movie Baby Driver that's my, my coming attraction trailer looks not the trailer looks interesting I think the film will be very good um, I've got for this time one that I held off on I think last week's show I'm still uh, it's a coming attraction but I'm kind of in two minds this is called Rough Night it comes out later this year and it stars um, in particular Scarlett Johansson the setup is that a bachelorette party involving uh, ScarJo herself and then Zoe Kravitz oh, dropped the ScarJo right? yeah I did I'll, I'll own that uh, Zoe Kravitz who I mentioned earlier in, in Big Little Lies obviously uh Lenny Kravitz's daughter yeah, um, and Kate McKinnon that we saw in the female reboot of Ghostbusters but on SNL all the time uh, Demi Moore's in this as well they go on a bachelorette party and a male stripper ends up slightly accidentally unfortunately dead and they have to deal with the consequence of this which to me sounds like very much is like this that very bad thing very bad thing as yeah. you were describing that I was like is this with a bachelor party Peter Berg's very bad things in fact Indeed. I believe he directed that but yes yeah I mean the the reason why I'm sort of interested oh and I should mention that Lucia Agnello is the um, director and writer of this thing although I think that um, maybe Kate McKinnon and Scarlett Johansson have had some involvement in the, the screen writing it as well um, is just the fact that I feel that Scarlett Johansson's at such a point in her career that it would be surprising to me if this is an absolute turkey. I I would be I think she would be loath to mm. attach herself to something that wasn't that didn't at least have fairly capable comic chops. Yeah, and I suppose it's her stepping out into a role where she shows that she's capable. Well, of, she's done a bit of work on SNL, hasn't she? I think I think she's she, done a few skits. She did now a guest star yeah. recently on on SNL. I yeah. think the tail end of last year or the beginning of this year, where she she was fine. But I mean, SNL is so drearily unfunny I mean when you you know you look up those episodes you, you find an episode where somebody you like is is yeah. hosting and guest hosting and you think that'll be worth your time and it invariably kind of isn't in my opinion I didn't it, the thing is so sort of tired. I think there's a few good sketches on there, but I would agree with you on that. It's not not my cup of tea, but but this, yeah, rough night. We'll see. I mean, we'll see. It could be one of those sort of you know bawdy comedies that we get multiple times a year that is trying too hard and doesn't work, or it could be genuinely funny and Scarlett Johansson might emerge as an actual comic force. Who who knows? We'll, we'll see later this year. Good, we will. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, which then brings us to, as, as as Pete mentioned earlier, we've got a single, only got a single feature review this week, which is the Belco Experiment, uh, directed by Greg McLean, um, which should be of interest to fans of Wolf Creek because he directed that Wolf Creek and Wolf Creek Two, uh, and also and perhaps more interestingly to some people, uh, it was written by James Gunn, uh, director of Guardians of the Galaxy, um, Slither super amongst other things but i think it's it's interesting here for me because it's it's written by james gunn um 
Piece and, out the scene for us. Yeah, and, and I guess the last piece of that puzzle to drop in is that it has a cameo by supremo character actor Michael Rooker. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the setup is pretty high concept and, and easy to summarise, I think. Uh, there are a group of employees. Those employees are in Bogota in Colombia. They're working for a company called the Belco Corporation. They arrive at work one day and have a bit of sort of perfunctory banter between the you know various members of the office. And then all hell breaks loose because the shutters on the building come down. They're metal shutters that they didn't even know about. There seem to be military personnel milling around outside. And they are told that they need to kill at least two of their contingent in the next, I don't undetermined, I think, amount of time. Otherwise, worse things will befall the group. I think, there's, yeah, another member. Yeah. And from there, it sort of escalates. It escalates um, quickly. <laughs> yeah. So um, at first, as you would imagine, there is uh, incredulity. There are people who sort of write this off as a prank or a joke of some kind. But it quickly becomes apparent that nobody's joking. This is a real situation. And we have to deal with what we're going to do in the face of, yeah, a kind of insurmountable odds and being confined to a point where there literally is no escape. It seems like the final... Um, aspect I think here worth mentioning is that when looking for an early escape it's soon established that each and every member of that uh, staff has implanted in the back of their skull some kind of tiny tiny explosive device that will render them entirely dead if they <laughs> try any funny business yeah I mean that that might be a good in point to the, our review here Paul because not unlike uh, one um, battle royale yeah, not unlike Battle Royale, not unlike Running Man, I suppose, in places. Um, it, You know, I think it's it's fair to say it wears its influences on its sleeve. I don't think it's ashamed and I don't think it I don't think it blindly rips off Battle Royale. Um, but the, the, those those cert, those things certainly are there. Yeah. And I mean, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. As no, well, you not know, always. It, no, not always. No, Royale, not in the same it, way that Hunger Games blatantly ripped off well, Battle yeah, Royale. The, the but... thing that was galling about Hunger Games is I felt like when people were asked about that, they were very reluctant to admit that that yeah. was even an influence. And it was so apparent to anyone yeah. who'd been around to see that film to start with. Whereas I think someone like Greg McLean, obviously that's even entirely in his wheelhouse. Mm. The same with, with James Gunn. So yeah, it could be, you know, for a prospective cinema goer thinking about whether or not to go to this film, as soon as you say it's a bit like Battle Royale, I'm in, I'm in the door, I'm in my yeah. seat. So from that vantage point did this play out in a way that you found obviously not spoiling any sort of plot no. movements but do you think that the filmmaker uh, Greg McLean and, and his cast and crew were able to create something that held your interest for the running time yes and for why um, I don't think it's as good as it could have been I think I would have preferred this as much as I am a big fan of Greg McLean um, I think I would have preferred this to be directed by James Gunn which I think was the original intention but I was reading somewhere that I think he, he was obviously busy with with the Guardians films um, and then didn't get around to directing and obviously employed someone to do that on on his behalf um, that's not to say it's a bad film I think it's it's got a lot to offer fans of the genre um, it's incredibly violent um, so there's there's a word of warning there um, perhaps it is less interesting than it could have been with the premise I think probably in in the second half, the kind of interesting notion of, of what the Belco experiment is and, and why they're there um, probably could have been expanded on more than the film just have been people creatively killing people with rolls of sellotape, for example, yeah. or sellotape dispensers, in fact. I think that could have been that could have been fleshed out a little bit more than it was, but I think it's, it's a gleefully over-the-top um, sort of action horror, for me, anyway. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of... Um touched on something there that I wanted to pick up on and that's the fact that the Belco experiment the title of the film is supposed to be some kind of um, social experiment right mm. we're led to believe not unlike something like the Milgram test you know where people are placed in different rooms and yeah. you're supposed to administer an electric shock if this participant yeah. gets a question wrong but then increasingly you're told to administer more and more or higher and higher voltage mm. by a person wearing a lab coat so therefore sort of wielding authority implicit authority and most of the people in that experiment whenever it's been uh, iterated uh, go up and up and up the scale because they're told to do something. That's interesting. My problem, I guess, with the Belco experiment itself, the experiment part of it rather than the film at yeah. large, is that it felt like at a certain point the filmmakers sort of abandoned the idea that there's any real experiment going on here. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because I think there's it, no out. 
no, there's no out. In the Milgram it, experiment, you can leave. Yeah. In this, what can you do? You can't really do anything. It's just going to go on and on and on. And I think that that's what I mean. I think I think it's it's, it's got an interesting setup, and then towards the end, is it's it's just people bashing each other's skulls in, which I'm fine with. As regular listeners will know, I'm quite a big fan of exploitation and horror. I'm fine with that, and I enjoyed it for that reason, and enjoyed watching other people in the cinema squirm. It's quite entertaining to do so. But yes, I think as much as this was entertaining, there is a more there's a more interesting film in there than the one we actually got, and I think. Well, I don't know. James Gunn has obviously still got writing credits, and maybe I don't know. I just feel the film may have explored those themes more. I don't know. I think it's you're right. I think it certainly could have those could have explored those themes more. Yeah, I mean, because you, you look at um, so the the previous films of Greg McLean, you've got Wolf Creek, which is the breakout. In Wolf Creek, I think one of the it, to be honest, I would say the strongest thing about Wolf Creek is the very idea that it has that central sort of psycho crocodile Dundee character who. Um, has that moment around the campfire early on this is not spoiling anything early on in Wolf Creek where one of the youngsters who've stopped off to have their car repaired by him makes an off-handed comment that is offensive to him and turns the whole atmosphere so we've got that human element that I think adds to the horror of what you know, then unfolds in Wolf mm. Creek, right? And all of the time, you're sort of willing those characters, whether you think they're good performances or not is by the by, but you're willing those characters to escape the clutches of this guy who's obviously going to, you know, enact really terrible things on them. But in this film, the stakes are really high because you've got, you know, a building full of people who will have to kill each other or die yeah. and your head could explode at any moment, which is a sort of fairly thrilling, heart-pounding conceit. But then those stakes are kind of torpedoed by the idea that you haven't given us any you know there's no solution here available and I think that's important in even the most you know overblown genre filmmaking I think you need to have uh somewhere the way that you use the stakes is very important right and I think that here that's squandered a little bit um by like you were saying sort of by the end of the yeah I think it is and I think you know there's there's elements of other films here like well there's the certainty there's certain bits of the film that remind me a bit of Cube Mm. Yeah, and again, um, but again, superior because in Cube you're always trying to figure out why is this happening, yes. why is this here. You get that in the Belko experiment, but then you feel as if these characters and their interactions are interesting. In this film, we've got people so quickly savagely turned against each other that we don't really get many interpersonal bonds in this film at all, do we? No, I don't think we do, and I think that that's where the film does suffer a bit of an identity crisis. I don't think it entirely knows what what it wants to be, whether it does want to go for straight up exploitation or whether it does want to be a slightly more cerebral take on it and I mean don't, don't forget in the play, in places Cube was incredibly violent Yeah. Um, but still you had that and as, as as you rightly said in Cube you had that sense of mystery throughout and I think for me Belko Experiment had that sense of, mis- sense of mystery at the beginning but then threw it all away towards the end mm. um, in expe- in the at the expense you know in expense of, for putting in lots of lots of violence which for me is great I find it entertaining um, but not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there, there are choices made here because our central character, the guy that we spend most time with, is drawn as essentially a sympathetic character, right? Yeah. His his intention seems always to be, we can't kill innocent people. He says this from the outset. We can't kill innocent people. You know, we've got to work together. We've got to think this through. We've got to do this and that. Well, if this was going to be sort of pure, violent exploitation... You don't even need a sympathetic character. Yeah, exactly. Put this, Mike, yeah. Michael Rooker at front and centre here. Yeah. You know, have, have him bludgeoning his way to success. Why not? Because, yeah, I think it creates a problem where you feel like, okay, I'm supposed to root for or relate to this guy in some way, but he's not connected with anyone else. Like, there's this kind of relationship-ish situation yeah. that has going on, but it's so thinly sketched that you don't care. Um, yeah, I, I just think that those two things in tandem, the lack of character connections and the sort of wrecking of the stakes really made this a lot less than yeah you were saying it like it could have been a much more I think successful it, it, it could have been it could have been superb um as it stands it was it was entertaining but I what's think it wasn't what's best about it though in your opinion because I think that I've gone into you know what I think are the problems but what what works the best for you because you know there are things definitely. I just think it's a lot of fun. It's 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 it's, 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 it's gleefully over the top, as I think I, I mentioned earlier, and you know I quite I I embrace that. But that that to, yeah. that being said, as I said, that's certainly not for everyone. And be warned if you are listening, it is incredibly violent in places. Incredibly yeah, violent. I mean we do get that um, somewhere in the film. Again, you know, wary of spoiling anything. Somewhere in the film, that sort of um, fairly 
subtle, I guess, reference to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which yeah. I massively, massively <laughs> yes. appreciate. I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the sort of high point yeah. here. Um, yeah, you get some really inventive kills. You get some moments of real tension. You get stuff in a lift shaft, which I think always is, is yep. nice to see in, in any kind of action situation. Um, there's a really, uh, in my mind, um, unsavoury and unnecessary sequence of murder of a female cast member that you may yes. remember who's essentially making a sort of cameo in one scene for the purposes of I'm not sure what um, I think is the, the worst side of, of Greg McLean maybe as a filmmaker but um, incidentally I've just been poking around the Greg McLean situation he's made a thing as well coming out this year called Jungle where Daniel Radcliffe's off in the Bolivian jungle. Oh, no, I didn't yeah. know that. That sounds cool. T- turns out, because you also had uh, Rada Mitchell in, in Rogue, was another one of his yeah. that I'd forgotten about with the giant crocodile thing, right? So, I didn't know that was Greg McLean. Oh, yeah, so there's, there's more to come, I suppose. Yeah. And, and Daniel Radcliffe's getting around. Maybe it'd be interesting. I just think, yeah, coming out of this one, cool stuff, cool sort of battle royale stuff. Yeah. But problems that I think... Yeah, I think... Genre fans, genre fans will love it. Yeah. Um. Everyone else will be left probably a little bit cold. Yeah, I um, think that's fair. Or like sickened. Yes. By, or just by sickened. The, yeah. the amount of <laughs> neck snapping and stuff that goes on. Right, Paul. Let's bring ourselves out of that review. We've escaped the building. We managed to pry open the shutters or use little tiny bombs to blow the <laughs> yeah. doors off or whatever. Um. And we got ourselves out into the cold light of day and the homework section. First of all, Paul, have you done your homework? I've done my homework. Yes, you'd be very pleased to know that I have done my homework because uh, I think we do need to. If we do need to um, come come up with a forfeit if someone doesn't do their homework, and I think I might have the forfeit in mind if you don't do yours. But we, I, w- I will make you watch every Catherine Heigl film. I will make you watch a film directed by James Franco. I'll make you watch a film directed <laughs> by Catherine Heigl. <laughs> right. So yes, I have done my homework. The homework you set me was Joe Swanberg's Happy Christmas. Um, yeah, this was because we did win it all, right? Yes. Like so this is Joe Swanberg's Happy Christmas. Um, I really like this. I really like this. Um, I, I wasn't aware. I was aware of Joe Swanberg's work. I wasn't aware that he was a, a Mumblecore in Bunny Ears uh, director. Um, and if Mumblecore is well written and maturely acted uh, dramas, then I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, me too, man. And Mumblecore's yeah. a stupid title anyway. But yeah, you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, and I think that's you know just uh, just as a, a brief summary of, of what this is. Yeah, it's just it's a, like a window into some character's life for a brief period of time. Anna Kendrick was great. Um, yeah, and it's not Anna Kendrick as sort of just pixie, you no. know, dream sort of. It's uh, a genuine human being, Anna Kendrick kook. character. It's a, what did you say? It's a genuine human being, Anna, Anna Kendrick. I think. It's yeah. true. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. Um, Joe Swanberg is always an actor. I think is always is is solid. Um, he's in this uh, as in one of the leading roles, and I've completely forgotten her name again. And I really like her as an actress. Um, Melanie Linsky. Melanie Linsky, also superb. Yeah, so, who was yeah. in I don't feel at home yeah. as well anymore. Uh, we reviewed recently, actually. Go so yeah, no, there's there's a lot to like, and I said don't don't be put off by the the trendy tag name for this this genre. It's it's well acted drama, and uh, Happy Christmas was good. So it's a stupid you. title, though, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't because well, doesn't no do one, it any no favors. Really mumbling in it, to be honest. But <laughs> right, yeah. Anyway, uh, I was set for this week's homework. Uh, Jim Henson's Labyrinth, which somehow had passed me by for my entire life. Uh, it came out in 1986 when I was a what two or three year old. Um, but I didn't see it then and I hadn't seen it since. Um, yes, so this is centred around uh, Jennifer Connelly's, uh, yeah, what, 15-year-old character? I think so, something yeah. Something like that. The centre of this, obviously, she's gone on to, to huge things since. Um, but this must have been a huge thing to get when you're 15 years old, mm. working with David Bowie and Jim Henson, a pretty incredible um, bit of you know casting success for Jennifer Connelly at, at 15. Uh, she has to follow or, or chart her path through a labyrinth in order to save her baby brother at the beginning of the film has been thrust away from her because she wished that the goblins would take her brother away. Yeah, um, yeah a lot to like. I mean, it's one of those things, Paul, where... The song, though, come on. The, that one song and dance routine with Bowie in it is amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah, and Bowie's bulge I've heard a lot about yeah. in the past and I saw it in you <laughs> yeah. know, living colour in this thing. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to like. It's clearly a work of a lot of, you know, sort of a lot of love's gone into making this thing. The puppet work from Jim Henson is is beautiful. I mean, some of those puppets have yeah. so much sort of character and charisma about them. Um, it, it shows its age. Uh, I mean, it's 
what 30 years old yeah it definitely shows its age i think some of the it has some pacing problems i think i sort of lulled myself out of being as excited about it as i'd been at the beginning by the time it sort of reached the midpoint yeah but i'm glad i've caught up with this um i I would like to say Jennifer Connelly at 15 is a really good actress. I'm not sure that she was. <laughs> no, she's not the best. But I mean, I've part. got to give her a bit of slack um, here. She's in esteemed company. Uh, David Bowie is as charismatic as you'd expect yeah. in the role that he's obviously having a great deal of fun performing. And um, yeah, I mean, thanks for saying it because I'm glad I've actually been pushed into seeing Labyrinth finally good. after good. all this no, time. I'm glad you've watched it. And this, you know, this is the, the positive side to homework, I think. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so my homework for you, uh, just before we uh, wrap up, listeners, my homework for Pete is a film I watched this week but was so struck by it that I decided to leave it off of popcorn movies. I'm going to make Pete watch it so we can probably talk about it in more detail next week, which is Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris. Now, I've never seen Andre Toskosi's work before Solaris. I'm ashamed to admit on a film podcast, but I will admit it. Um, to be fair, Paul, everyone has those, though. Everyone's got Everyone films, can yeah. posture and be like, oh, I'm a real film fan. I'm a, a, a you know, aficionado. I'm a, a cinephile or whatever. You know, whoever you are listening to this, if you're in that position, that you have big gaps in your film. Everyone's got gaps in yeah, the film. Of course they So have. anyway, so it was, it was a delight to fill it with Solaris. So that obviously ruins whether I like it or not. Um, and my homework to you, and I will lend you the Blu-ray before you leave this evening, is uh, Andrei Toskovsky's Solaris. Yeah, I, I too have never seen this film. Um, I saw the George Clooney remake. Yeah, Steven Soderbergh directed. Soderbergh, it was like 2001 or yeah. two, something like that. Um, so I've been desperate to go back and, and check this out. And so I look forward to doing that. We're being very friendly with our homework. We are, yes. But yes. I think it's cool because like we established on, on earlier episodes of the show, you know, we have similar but also at times divergent interests in sort of particular genres of film yes and i think this is a good way for house to basket games right yeah. but for you to say hey i'm into watching these kind of films so you have to watch this yeah. and vice versa yeah. right that's why perfect segue into what have you got for me pete i've got uh, me. charles hood's film night owls okay which i've blithered on about on this show a yes of times. You it. um it, it maybe even like a couple of weeks ago a week ago it stars adam pally and rosa salazar that I mentioned on last week's yeah. show who's in Alita uh, Battle Angel coming up I think next year Rob Hubel's also in this that you probably know from various comedy outings um, yeah basically it's about a couple of people who have to spend the night together initially willfully later against the will of at least one of them but cool. not in that way um, and it's a lot of things that I'll leave you to determine by the time we rejoin our listeners for next week's show yes um, and that brings us to the end of episode 40 our 40th birthday it's been a pleasure spending it with listeners um, you can find us on Twitter on at Stranger Cinema Facebook Stranger Cinema Instagram Stranger Cinema yeah just type Stranger yeah, just Stranger Cinema, Cinema. Stranger yeah stuff. just type that into the thing it will come up um, and that's it from us this week so thank you for listening yeah see you next time <laughs>